Hello, and thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Billy Newman Photo Podcast. Today, I wanted to speak to you a little bit about rendering out MP4 video. I know that's probably a pretty exciting topic for everybody. Uh, that's what I've been doing recently. I've been trying to, to kind of put all of that on this workhorse desktop computer that I'm using. Uh, and I'm trying to use, a, well, first I was trying to use Lightroom, right? You're probably familiar with talking about Lightroom for managing photos and sort of working with them and editing them. Uh, it also has limited capabilities of working with the video files that come off the DSLRs that are that are just kind of commonplace with modern DSLR cameras. Uh, so bringing those videos over there, they're normally some kind of MPEG container format, of which I've seen, I guess, MKV or uh, I don't know, MKS. Is that, is that a Chrysler? I don't know. Uh, it's, that might be a different thing, but there, there's like a handful, like MTS or something like that. There's a handful of these different uh, little like container file extensions that I'm trying to sort out. They're fine. They seem to open to most things. I'm not really having a big problem with it other than AVCHD. I'm definitely trying to sort those out if I have any of those raw ones around. But I have this library of videos around. Now, I appreciate having the original files. And if that's something that's important to you as a media creator, I definitely recommend keeping those original source files around at a higher quality. But for me, with a lot of elements of video, especially a lot of projects that are done, but maybe some things that are kind of, I don't know, like a, they're, they're, they're an accomplished project, but I want to keep those media elements around, but not necessarily in their whole quality uh, by any means anymore. So I'm trying to go through and render those things out. Um, and not necessarily about a quality thing, but just about an odd format thing. Like I was just explaining with MKVs and MTSs and uh, 3GPs and, and uh, MOVs, though those are quite common. But I'm trying to make the system just a little bit more uniform for the video experience of it, the videos that I have. I'm trying to render, render those out. I was trying to use Lightroom to do this. I was trying to use it in mass to render out and refile name all of these video elements so that I don't have any more collisions with these video files as I'm moving the file names around, you know, image. 0001.mp4 overwrites image 001.mp4 created two years later on a different SD card that got formatted, whatever it is. It's been a problem before. I probably lost media because of it, because of that error. So to try and correct that, I'm trying to go through and, uh, and render everything out with an additional uh, date name that I was able to add in Lightroom. But Lightroom kept crashing, or at least would not render the video that I had trying to get out from the, the Lightroom catalog that I had uh, the video stored in. So it was kind of interesting. I definitely had like, a lot of problems with that. It did a great job with a handful of the sets of video, like the 3GP, I think the MTS and MKVs, I think it worked through quite well. But any of these MOV files, it just sits at, it doesn't necessarily even lag. It's just not rendering frames. It just sits there like it wasn't asked to respond. The computer's processors don't kick up at all. It's not like it's trying to render out video but not, or I don't know. It just like pretends like it didn't get asked to do anything at the time. So it's all the struggle of trying to render video. So I, I ended up dumping Lightroom because I was hoping that I could do some automatic file naming and, and file categorizing with Lightroom and have it do a bulk export of video under the format that I was hoping and kind of have it, you know, automate some of that file naming system and, uh, and export settings and stuff. Uh, I ended up switching over to Handbrake because I was having such a hard time getting Lightroom to actually grab onto the video and do anything with it. So I've been having a great uh, uh, experience with Handbrake so far. And really, there's a lot of the tools in the more modern systems of Handbrake that make the file naming and uh, recompression system quite easy, where you can set things as same as source and use file name as source. Uh, and that's working really quite well to kind of grab a file, put it in a render queue, 
with new settings that are pretty automatic where it's, you know, it's kind of like a two or three click operation to get a new video added to the queue. And so just earlier today, I added a hundred .mov files to the queue, which I hope are set up correctly. I think there's a couple of mistakes I made in there. Hmm. We'll see how they render out. But, uh, but I put those in the queue and I'm, I'm doing a test of it now. And that, that stronger computer, as opposed to my laptop is really burn through those video frames like much faster. I think I was, I was rendering out about 30 frames a second. So it's almost like real time rendering. If you were to think about like, you know, 30 frames a second in the video, well, 30 frames got rendered of that video in just that one second. So it's going through it much faster than I'm used to in the olden days. It's kind of fun to see who knows where it will be 10 years from now. You can see more of my work at billynewmanphoto.com. You can check out some of my photo books on Amazon. I think you can look up uh, Billy Newman under the authors section there and see uh, some of the photo books on film, on the desert, on surrealism, on camping. Some cool stuff over there. This image, uh, that was a quick screenshot or a quick capture that we made around the campsite. Uh, near Lone Pine, California, in the Alabama hills. And it was a really cool campsite. I think we stayed there for about, I don't know, four to six days or so in uh, November and December of 2012. Really cool time of year to be out there. And we were fortunate. I think east of the Sierra Nevadas, we had uh, that rain shadow uh, so that it was just a lot drier on that east side of California than it was on that coastal side of the Sierra Nevadas when we were there a few weeks before that. But a cool thing about this campsite, if uh, you guys were to bother to look it up, it actually matches the Broomhilda scene from Django Unchained, if you were to watch that. We found that out, I think, uh, right after we had camped here at the spot, then we had watched the movie Django just a few months later, and we were like, whoa, wait a second. We had just been to that spot, that exact spot right there, right where this uh, picture was taken. I think, I think there's a scene where it shows, like, Jamie Foxx sitting over on the, the rock that is currently the uh, the kitchen table in this scene. Uh, but yeah, it was kind of interesting. I think it, the shot was set up a little different, but it was really cool to see. And you're like, wow, that's right where we used to be. Interesting when you find out a spot that you were where something else was filmed. And it seems like a remote kind of campsite like this. But I'm sure over the years, thousands of people have been there. You can check out more information at billynewmanphoto.com. You can go to billynewmanphoto.com forward slash support if you want to help me out and participate in the value for value model that uh, we're running this podcast with. If uh, you receive some value out of some of the stuff that I was talking about, you're welcome to uh, help me out and send some value my way through the portal at billynewmanphoto.com forward slash support. You can also find more information there about uh, Patreon and the way that I use it if you're interested or, or feel more comfortable using Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash Billy Newman photo. The 360 degree photo work over the last couple of weeks, which has been really cool and I've uh, enjoyed it a lot. I really like doing the 360 stuff. I think uh, back in June of 2018, we had done a bunch of podcasts about some of the 360 uh, photography stuff that we were trying to do, some of the video stuff that we were doing with the GoPro Fusion at the time. And that was all really uh, cool, and I liked that video a lot. This time I was working with a Ricoh Theta Z1, and I was going around to a few locations to try and get some photographs. Uh, specifically, I think photographs a lot in this circumstance. Not so many videos, um, but uh, but yeah, really interested in the in the 360 photography stuff that I was able to 
to edit together and to to capture during that time. So that was cool. But I went out to an area in uh, in Central Oregon that was pretty cool, and went up on like a hillside to uh, do some 360 work. And it's cool out there because you can really see the topography of how the Great Basin was formed at the well, I guess like during the whole era of the Pleistocene, as it was for a long-standing period of time. Uh, like a, a a lake. It was just a big lake out there. And then as things started changing at the end of the Pleistocene, I think there was huge changes that, that ended the Great Basin stuff, that ended a lot of the megafauna that was in the area. And that kind of changed the topography of the landscape over the last 10,000 years to be something that's much more of the high desert, sagebrush, juniper tree, exposed rock uh, landscape that we see today and a lot less of the uh, forested, uh, temperate kind of mountain climate that we have through the Cascades and through part of Oregon. I'm sure it was always more dry given the rain shadow of the Cascade Mountains there. But I think that for a long period of time, as according to signs posted on my drives uh, in areas where I go hiking sometimes, but, uh, you know, like when you go up to some place and it says, you know, this area so such and such time ago had these animals in it. Well, you see like giant beavers or you see like camels or, or giant sloths, I guess they had in the area, too. There's all sorts of stuff that they had uh, that ended up being wiped out I don't know, 100,000 years ago, 60,000 years ago to what, 10, 20, 10,000 years ago, something like that. There's a lot of changes that happened over the period of the Pleistocene, I guess, during what they call the Quaternary Period. A, a period of uh, glaciations that the earth has been involved in for the last 100,000 or 200, maybe a million years. I'm not sure. It's, it's the last couple hundred thousand years we've been going in these cycles of glaciations. Or, you know, we're in an ice age period. So we go into an ice age, like we have ice on the earth right now, and it'll be more ice at a point and then less ice at a point. More ice at a point, less ice at a point. I guess that's been going on for what they say somewhere around like 200,000 years of these 30,000 year periods of glaciation to non-glaciation uh, where like, I think we're coming, we're like on the far end of the glacial maximum now. So we had the, with the glacial maximum about like what, 11,000, 12,000 years ago, or is that right? No, it must've been like 15, 20,000 years ago that we were at the maximum. Then it started receding, I suppose. That's when we were able to no. That doesn't make sense. We had like the land bridge, like the Beringia stuff where people got over. That was probably fifteen to 20,000. Sea levels were lower. They sailed away at like 400 feet. They skirted along the coastlines. They came over through the land. So that was all pretty long ago. Well, anyway, at some point, like I was there, like I'm going to figure out, wait, let me remember. Let me think back to 15,000 years ago. Where was I? Yeah, I wasn't here. Uh, so I don't know what happened. But apparently there's been some recorded evidence that I was learning about. Um, in I think it's like Monteverde down in Chile. And that's a location where uh, I think they had carbon dated something to 15,000 years old. Like human remains, human element remains. There's uh, there's like a, a few locations here in Oregon where they, they, I guess, have evidence of the Clovis people. That's sort of around like the 11, 12, 13,000 year mark. And then there's other evidence of things that are, I don't know, within like the, it's tough. It's like anything from like 7,500 years to 15,000 years ago seems to all kind of be in flux of a date because there's really not many, not many perfect ways to date that. 
and if it's a cultural artifact like a an arrowhead or a pot shard or a scraper there's there's some indication of how those things are going to be created or how those artifacts are going to be created and how those are going to remain like fulsome points or clovis points are pretty distinct from each other but they're not really culturally distinct from each other so it could be like a variation of many different tribes and languages and peoples uh, all well unrelated to each other but related with a similar vein of technology for a few thousand years of you know their, their tool use shape was kind of similar because they're all kind of from a similar descendancy but i think when you get like a more than 100 miles away your, your languages separate over you know, like a couple generations you're just going to speak different languages um but man wild stuff anyway so i don't remember where we even started with this but i was out in eastern oregon exploring the great basin i went up on a hillside in public land and i was doing some 360 photography work with the rico zeta Oh, wait, Rico Theta Z1. That's what it is. And, yeah, I was capturing some stuff on a hillside, really beautiful areas up there where those ridges kind of drop in and out. And so it's cool when you get, like, up to a higher elevation, you can kind of see the pockets of where these lakes and pools of water and uh, had kind of sat and rested for what seems like. I think I was saying something about recording some 360 photographs up on some public land in the high desert in the the Lake County Great Basin area of eastern Oregon. Beautiful spot over there. I really enjoy it. And uh, yeah, it was awesome to, to use the Rico Theta Z1 to be capturing some images uh, up in that area. It's cool when you're at a higher elevation and with the 360 camera, uh, you can kind of, uh, you can kind of, I don't know, it, it provides a, a little bit of a, a different perspective. It seems silly to say like wider, but uh, when you re, when you kind of replay those images and you're able to sort of look around in context of what's to the left and to the right of you, you're kind of able to put together the, the context of the landscape a little better and a little faster than you could if you just had a series of individual photographs that had segments of the wider landscape captured in it. So it was cool at that higher elevation. Uh, you could, you could kind of look down to areas that we had been hiking around earlier in the day through uh, some of the ridges and troughs that would be uh, over in that area. And you can look down, you know, it's like uh, 500 feet down in elevation to what we thought was kind of the mountaintop pass. And then past that is another maybe thousand foot or a couple hundred foot uh, drop in elevation as it goes down toward the lake basin area. So all that was pretty cool. And, and what was also cool about it is just sort of visualizing how populated that area had been in the past. I think, uh, you know, prior to... Uh, the western expansion of the United States and uh, as thousands of years had passed by and uh, this region of land in the northwest it had been populated and that region specifically had been populated by uh, nomadic tribes that had been able to travel and subsist off of uh, the wild game that was there I think a lot of like antelope and deer and it looks like bighorn sheep uh, by some of their uh, well I don't know some kind of sheep but uh it looks like that from uh, from some of their their pictographs and petroglyph information that they left there. And the dynamics of some of those populations of animals have changed in the time uh, now, given like modern day. I don't know. If, I don't know if we're going to see a lot of sheep out there in Lake County, but there's one drawn on a rock out there, so they must have been trying to look for it. There's a lot of them in the Southwest as you move into the I think the Modoc tribes 
for them that's more of a 3,000 to 25, 2,000, I don't know, it's probably about 3,000 to 600 years ago sort of a thing, but, or 100 years ago really, I think that was like Captain Jack over there, Captain Jack's stronghold for the Modoc Indian Reservation area, uh, that was like in the Indian Wars of the 1850s, so. They lasted until then, but uh, um, yeah, there's some information about uh, some of the uh, uh, Paiute, the Paiute Indians. I think the northern Paiute that were in that area of uh, southern, southeastern Oregon, Nevada, then into Utah, Arizona, and New Mexico, if I kind of understood right. But I know there's some fluctuations in there um, and, and differences in timing and stuff, but... But yeah, it's all uh, pretty cool stuff. It was really uh, it was awesome to get out there. It was get, it was cool to get out and kind of walk around in some areas of uh, some public land where we still have some access and still get out to um, try and do some photography stuff even in this uh, period where you're supposed to stay home and there's a lockdown. It was uh, it was cool to kind of get out and try and do some exploring and some social distance conscious. Um, I mean, hey, that's fine with me. I don't, I don't really have to be around a lot of people. It's better to do landscape, wildlife photography work while you're uh, sort of in some type of isolation. I'm sure like a lot of hunters are kind of considering something like that too. You know, hunters, fishermen, people that like hiking, or uh, you know, a lot of those solo activities. It's cool that uh, you know this kind of this time uh, sort of has provided a little bit of a reset for probably a lot of people out there to uh, have a bit more time to invest in some of the things that they would want to. I suppose a lot of folks are probably stuck more in their local area, but um, but it's a great time to uh, to get to invest in some things that seem more important to you. So that's what I've been trying to do. Hope you guys are doing well. Thanks a lot for listening to this episode of the Billy Newman Photo Podcast. You can check out more at BillyNewmanPhoto.com. I've been doing a ton of updates over there. Is there a plane taking off? Sounds like there's a prop plane that's about to fly over my head. It's like that scene in North by Northwest where Cary Grant starts getting run down by that biplane. That'd be scary. Let's hope that's not in my future. Thanks a lot for checking out this episode of the Billy Newman Photo Podcast. Hope you guys check out some stuff on BillyNewmanPhoto.com. A few new things up there. Some stuff on the homepage. Some good links to other other outbound sources. Some, some links to books. Some links to some podcasts. Links to some blog posts. All pretty cool. But yeah, check it out at billynewmanaphoto.com. Thanks a lot for listening to this episode of the podcast. Talk to you next time.